the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Last time, Dr. J, who was with me here in studio, talked about a number of questions that uh, really raise uh, basically a series of problems or dilemmas when it comes to the origin of the Quran. Today, he is going to continue along the same line. Dr. J, thank you so much for being here. So you shared a number of questions, I think five, if I remember, and you want to continue, of course, with additional questions concerning the origin of the Quran and the problem with the traditional story. Yeah, we're now in... 652. We're now with Uthman, the third caliph. Uh, he has been in power since 644. Uh, he, uh, there is a problem in Azerbaijan. We know uh, that Udaifa uh, comes down upset that he heard different Qurans being recited in the mosque. We've got to get just one Quran. And so therefore he has Uthman get Zaidi Bitabi to get Hafsa's copy to rewrite the Quran uh, in the Qureshi dialect. Now here's my number of questions. How could there be dialectical differences in the mid-7th century? In order to have a written text, in order to have a written text that is dialectically different, you have to have the dots and the vowels, do you not? Uh, That's right. If you want to read it correctly. You've got to have that. There were, there were no dots and vowels. Well, there weren't, at least not in the central part of Arabia. Later, they were added, some of and them. And we do know there is a few dots being introduced in Egypt, which is hundreds of miles away. In fact, almost a thousand miles away. So not, certainly down in Central Arabia, there was not any dots and vowels that were used at that time. So you cannot have dialectical differences in a written text. In a spoken dialectical, you do. Well, it's a spoken different dialects. But to write it down, you need to have the vowelization, the Dhamma, the Kasa, and the Fatta. And you need to have the, the dot above, the noon, the ta, the tha, the ba, and the ya, the, the five dots that are needed to create those five letters. That didn't exist. So that's the first problem. These were not introduced really until the 8th century, and they were not even finalized and canonized until possibly the ninth. Some say maybe even the tenth. Let's go to question number seven. Why did Uthman burn the other copies? So this is the big major problem. Every time I bring this up to Muslims, they change the subject because they know there's a problem. Why, now, Al-Fadi, why would you burn anything? Well, you burn anything because you disagree with, because it's critical of your work, or you just don't want anyone to compete with whatever you think is the right thing to say or publish. In other words, it's almost equivalent to people blocking you on Facebook or discounting you and canceling you on YouTube or social media. That's, there you go. That's what yeah. it is. Absolutely. Yeah. So you burn the evidence. You destroy the evidence. The yeah. easiest way to do that. But burning requires uh, a, a piece of literature. You can't burn vowel. You can't burn oralization. Dialectic dialects were oral. You speak it a different way. You pronounce a, a word a different way. You pronounce a sentence a different way. How do you burn orality? 
You can't yeah. burn a rattle. And, and to be honest with you, Dr. J, and again, maybe you're going to talk about this later. Uh, it, it kind of like prompts you to think the fact that there is no diacritical marks or, or dottings, it almost makes it look like, you know, that's the style of the Aramaic writing, right? Or Syriac writing. So it seemed like maybe that's where it started. It, no need for these dots. People knew how to pronounce it. And now we're having a problem. Yeah. Now the burning and the destruction does come, but it doesn't come with Uthman. Not that early. Hold on. Shoemaker is going to show us where that burning takes place. I'm holding on all the much, time. Much, much, much later. I'm not going to give you the name. Yeah. You're going to get it and when it's time in its own time in its own season. So this uh, suggests that these are written texts, even at that time. The burning makes sense when there is a written text. There is nothing written at early. We know this because there's no manuscript that early. Now, Number eight, Muslims claim they were burned because of different dialects. You cannot burn dialects in a written form. You can only burn dialects in an oral form. Unless you burn the tongue or burn someone's uh, personage, you cannot do that. The dialectical differences come with the Kirats. The Kirats don't even begin to appear until 736. That's the 8th century. We're in 652. This is 100 years earlier, almost about 80 years earlier. And that's just the beginning. And they go all the way up until 908. Or so we're talking about the tenth century. So those dialectical differences, we're gonna that's a whole nother problem. We're not even gonna get into that. Uh, Yasser Qadi found it almost destroyed his 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 uh, well his career because he dared to question or even to try to delve into that. Let's go to question number nine that I have, and that is the reference to Zaid ibn Thabit, who came uh, upon Surah ta- uh, chapter thirty three verse twenty three with one man, Kuzaima bin al Sari, which means that the earlier Quran was not complete. If he finds another part of the Quran that was not there, then what about the earlier one? Well, if it wasn't complete in 632, how comes it suddenly it's complete in 652? More than that, if it wasn't there in 632, what about the 70 who died with it in their memory? Did maybe they die with a lot of the Quran that went with them? That's true. So it could be a lot of the Quran is missing. Wouldn't that explain why none of the stories are complete? For instance, the, the stoning verse is not there, not because of death, but at least lack of uh, witness, right? But yet we read that at least one man... His testimony was counted as two. It's kind of confusing. There you go. The whole thing, the verse on Rajab, the stoning, which is in chapter 24, verse 2, has been changed to 100 lashes. That's what we see for those who commit adultery. The stoning is very clear. We're going to get into that in an upcoming episode where people even bemoan that. Why is it we stoned, the prophet stoned, we stoned after him, but now when you look at the Quran, that verse is not there. The verse Rajab is not there, proving that it's not the same Quran. But that's, a, that's for another time. I still want to just talk about these two compilations. Number 10, if there was a second Quran in 652, why now many different Arabic Qurans today? Uh, up to 30 different Arabic Qurans. That yeah. is the kid, uh, that's the Ahruf problem. That's Ibn Mujahid's problem. That's Ibn Mujahid's problem. And then, of course, five to nine copies that were sent to five to nine prophets. What are those prophecies? Where are they? That's going to be the next episode. We're going to look at those, but I have some damaging questions about just mm-hmm. even that last thing. And when we get there, I, I will share also my opinion about that. But uh, thank you, of course, for sharing this. Uh, everyone, I hope you're enjoying what we are sharing with you. As you can see, just by analyzing two Sahih Hadith, meaning authentic Hadith by Bukhari that were compiled 200 and plus years after the death of Muhammad, after the rise of Islam, after the alleged origin of the Quran. Look how many questions we have. And these are just, I think Dr. J is being generous with us here by giving us just a handful of questions because you can go on for episodes analyzing and criticizing these traditions. And this is why we really appreciate the fact that Shoemaker called his book Creating the Quran. He's not joking. He's not kidding. There is a process of creating what we call today the Quran. And I would argue, in fact, that 
every step of the way, whether you look at it from the standard Islamic narrative or outside of that, there was a human being involved. A human being involved. Like what? Abu Bakr, if we take the tradition correctly, and Omar. We take Uthman's uh, tradition correctly. That's a human being. Ibn Mujahid, that's a human being. Ash-Shatibi, and we can go on all the way until the 1924 Al-Azhar collection of what we call today the Hafs reading. And the list can go on and on and on. Dr. J, thank you so much as always. Thank you everyone for being here with us. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. So we're not trying to take sides uh, here. We're trying to be uh, fair-minded, but at the same time, we want to highlight anything that is beneficial and helpful. And we are truly, myself and Dr. J. Smith, who's with me here in studio to unpack all of that for us, are really, uh, you know, generally speaking, pleased with seeing a book like this. And my hope is that we will see more and more books uh, similar to this. Last time we talked about the compilation of the Quran. Today we're going to talk about the um, also the traditional story, the Islamic tradition story about the provinces that received copies when Uthman did his second compilation of the Quran. And with that, I'll turn my attention to Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., uh, thank you again as always. And um, you talked about the two traditional stories about the compilation. The first one during Abu Bakr's time, the second one during Uthman's time. And as you know, uh, the claim is that once Uthman did this, he made copies and dispensed it to certain regions or provinces. Absolutely. And this is sounds this is sounds what you would do. This is something I questioned why Abu Bakr didn't do this in 632. Why did he give it to one copy to uh, one of the wives yep. of Muhammad and yep. she stuck it under her bed for 20 years? No wonder they had so many different versions by the time they had the battle in Azerbaijan. And that's why they had to then rewrite the Quran in the Qurayshi dialect given to Uthman, and Uthman then dispenses them as the standard for each of these areas so that this would not happen again. That was the whole reasoning. They wanted to put a standard out, and they wanted to get it to every province that they owned at that time. Now, there are two different versions of what provinces we're talking about. The classical one, and I want you to look here. The classical one is this. So when you look at Uthman, the most, most traditions say five cities that were sent to Five provinces, five cities. That includes Medina, where he was. There's Medina. Right. So I've got it circled in green. And then Mecca here. So circled in green again. So these ones in green. This is the classical account that it was sent to those cities, plus Basra, which is in Iraq. And then you have Kufa. Now, I, I have circled Baghdad because Kufa is just south of Baghdad. There was no Baghdad at this time. There was, it was Stesiphon. Uh, it was yeah. a Persian yeah. city. Yeah. It became later in the next century Baghdad. And then the last one was here in Damascus. So those are the five. So, uh, Mecca, Medina, Basra, Kufa, and Damascus. That's what all, everybody agrees upon. Everybody agrees upon. But if you look at Al-Buhari, volume 6, hadith number 510, it doesn't say those five cities. It says to every province. That's right. Now, this is account of Al-Dani, by the way, uh, who uh, gave a number of different narratives. One of them talks about the five. Okay, Al-Dani. But most people go to Al-Buhari. And so Al-Buhari is the one we've been working with. That's a standard Islamic. That is what all of us are taught. That's what you were taught. I was taught. Goodness sakes. I don't know if any school doesn't teach, it teaches anything different. 
So what are the provinces? Well, we had a friend, our friends do this in England to look and see what the provinces were in the 7th century. Remember, they hadn't moved out all the way to Pakistan or way off, hadn't gone all the way to Tripoli. Uh, they hadn't gone off to all the way up to Turkey by this time, and they had not yet taken the southern reaches. Well, some people would say they had taken that. So this is not the time, uh, this, is, this is not the time of Abdul Malik when the full provinces, the Umayyad Caliphate had moved its borders out. We're still talking about the Rashidun period. <clears throat> we're talking about 652. We're talking about the rightly guided caliph. And we're talking about the third caliph, Uthman. So in 652, what were the provinces they would have owned? Well, this is the best we can come up with. But what's interesting, it's not just these five provinces, just uh, which are pretty much right here around the Arabian Peninsula. It also included other ones. In fact, if you add them up, there's 11 cities. So let's put them up there. So we have the first five. Then you have Jerusalem. Uh, you also then have Cairo. You have also Alexander. So there's three up there. Then you come way down here to Aden, way down here in Yemen. So you have the one down in the south. And then you have two more. One in Herat and the other one in Nishapur. So those are in what is today Afghanistan and Iran. This would be Yemen, that would be Egypt, and that would be, well, Israel, of course, today, if we were looking at a map today. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you notice about those 11 cities right at the top of your head, just looking at that map? Well, I mean, uh, the majority of them are concentrated in the north. They're all mostly up here in the north, yeah. one down in the south. These two, obviously, we're going to see later, are a problem. Mm-hmm. That's to come later. But what's interesting is when I look at this, if you look at these 11 here, except for Jerusalem, they're all still controlled by Islam and have been. For, for If the tradition is correct, and this all was controlled by the Muslims. Now, I don't believe they were Muslims. I don't even mean that, think that name is introduced until the next century. In other words, by the Arabs, they've always controlled these 11 cities. That's a big problem. Because if there are 11 manuscripts sent to 11 cities, even if there are five sent to the green ones here, what has happened in the last 14 years that would have destroyed those manuscripts? I don't know of any floods. I don't know of any warfare. I don't know of any earthquake. I don't know of any destructions of manuscripts that I'm aware of. I don't know of any reference anywhere that any one of those manuscripts should be, should be destroyed. So if 11 are the number of manuscripts that we're looking at, show me one. I like just have one. Here's the problem. And this is what Shoemaker's getting at. And he's going to be talking about this more. He won't say so much about the manuscript evidence. I'm bringing this in as an overlay. Because he talks about it sent to all the provinces. Well, let's look at those provinces. And people aren't doing this. They're not putting it on a map. And they're not asking the most damaging question. If you have this many manuscripts sent to this many cities for the whole reason, so it's standardized, so it becomes the paradigm, the model for all other manuscripts, they would have been the ones that would be preserved, right? You would not destroy them willy-nilly, or either that, or either the fact that we can't find even one of these manuscripts, nothing from the mid-7th century, either says that there's an enormous amount of ineptitude on Islam's part, or there were no manuscripts to begin with. Yep. Now, which is the one that you would go through? I'm not going to have you answer that right yet. We're going to go and ask this question later on, because certainly if you're going to take the tradition story face value, you've got to answer this question. You've got to look at this map, and you've got to say, that is an awful lot of manuscripts. Even the five are an awful lot of manuscripts. Certainly, at least one should have been preserved. We're only talking about 1,400 years ago. You look at our manuscripts, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus. They're already in the British Library. You can get them in the uh, Vatican, and they are from the uh, 3rd and 4th century. That is two to 300 years before this, and we have completely, they're, they're completely preserved for us 
for us to look at today. And also, uh, I mean, again, I don't want to jump ahead. I'm sure you're going to address at some point the question of the Qiraat using this because it was allegedly done by Uthman to fix the problem of variant text readings. Did it? I doubt it. <laughs> next, we're going to look at even a bigger problem than this. That's for the next episode. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Uh, we are really focused on every episode to address at least one big issue because we want to dissect it for you in a way that makes sense to you and also makes it easier for you to remember and to share it with others as well. Hopefully, you're enjoying this series. Feel free to always share with us. Subscribe to our channel, Sierra International, and we invite you to become part of our Patreon team. Until next time, thank you and God bless. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAinternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Last time we talked about the claim that when Uthman made his recension, uh, uh, recension of the Quran, the second compilation of the Quran, that he sent it to all provinces. And we showed at least there are multiple claims. One says five provinces. Another one, you can count up to uh, 10 or 11 provinces, if you wish. But all that to say is that we are intentionally showing you that there are holes in those narratives. The more we discuss them, the more the holes increase. Today is no exception. We are going to continue now with our discussion concerning the original Quran, or at least let's call it the 7th century Quran. Dr. J, thank you as always. What are we to say about the 7th century Quran? Well, we, well, what is there to say? What is there to say? We, we've already gone and talked about Abu Bakr's recension. That's the first one. Then we talked about Uthman's recension. That's the second one. So we're talking about two different Qurans right there, two different compilations. Obviously, we don't have either of them. None of them exist. We don't have Hafsa's copy, uh, which is the first recension, nor do we have Uthman's copy, which were sent to five, maybe 11 different provinces or 11 different cities. Uh, that's, that's what the traditions tell us, Al-Buhari, volume 6, hadith number 509 and 510. But it doesn't even stop with that, because now they've set these Qurans up to be standardized, right? They're standardized. So here we have, look at the map here. Look at the cities and the countries uh, uh, that we're going to show on a map. And what I want to do is I want to just put this up here. Because when you look at the five copies, one, two, three, four, five. Whoop, let's go up and get them all the right color. So those are the five copies that we see that we talked about in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Five copies. I'm not even going with 11. I'm just going to go with five for now, all right? Five copies of this one Uthmanic recension. So the standardized form sent to Mecca. Medina, called Yathra before that, Mm -hmm. to Basra, Kufa, and Damascus. So there they are, one in Syria today, uh, well, two in Iraq today, and two in what would be Saudi Arabia today. Those are the five. And that's what we're told is the standard form. No questions asked. From that time on, Muslims say it over and over again, 
this book here is that, the, are those. Mm-hmm. That's why they're all in green. They're all the same color. And you've heard every Muslim, and I'm sure if you Muslims who are listening to me, you know that you have said this, you've been told this. This is the narrative, the only narrative you've ever been given, that this book we have in our hand today is that manuscript, is one of those five. And they have never changed. Yasser Qadi, how many times, or Shabir Ali, how many times did they say not one letter, not one word right. has been changed? Especially Shabir Ali. Especially Shabir Ali. And the Quran makes that claim as well. That's right. In chapter 10, in chapter 15, verse 9, in chapter 18, verse 27, uh, in all these references, you see, there's no one can change the word of God. And in chapter 15, verse 9, that Allah even guards it from being changed so that no man can change it. Because if one man can change one of that, one letter or even one word, it's no longer preserved. It's no longer eternal. It's no longer the inimitable claim that Muslims right. make for the Quran. It could no longer be from heaven or eternally pre-existing even before the, uh, for mankind. So there's the problem right there. You've got these five, so this will never happen again. And then what happens? Well, you look at the traditions, mm-hmm. and you suddenly realize that up here in the north, suddenly a new one up appears, and that's Ubay ibn Qabs. And then also right here in Basra, another one comes in, and then Basra, another one. So you have three different Qurans coming in that are in the north up here. What's fascinating, the one that's up there, Ubay ibn Qabs, it is 116 surahs according to the Islamic traditions. Not me saying this. It's the Islamic tradition saying this. Well, there's 114 in the Quran we have today. 114 here, that's 116. So they're in Damascus. They have two extra surahs. That cannot be the same Quran. Right. The one that's over here in uh, what is today Baghdad was Kufa at that time. It has 110 surahs. This has 114. So that cannot be the same Quran. Then there's another one that's here in Basa. It does have 114, but not the same order, nor the same references points. As we're going to see when we get to John of Damascus, we're going to find some other surahs that aren't even found in the Quran, like the one like the camel, the surah of the camel. And that, so that's probably here in the one in Basra. And so these three do not at all parallel the one that we have in our hand today. So the only two that could possibly parallel would be Zaidi bin Thabit, which is why I've kept them in green here in Mecca and Medina. So five Qurans in the 7th century from Mecca, Medina, Basra, Kufa, Damascus. We don't have one of them today to check them out. But what about these three up here? How did those suddenly appear? If these were sent up there to standardize it, how can you have another Quran that's of 116 surahs, another Quran with 110 surahs, another Quran with 114? Yeah, no, some say 111, some say 110. There's a, there's a whole that's right. there's a discussion on that. But I want to add to this, you know, uh, obviously, uh, Arthur Jeffrey, in one of his, um, you know... Uh, um, Who's work, Arthur Jeffrey everybody knows? Uh, well, he, he's basically an Islamicist. If we want to say from Australia, and uh, he basically did a lot of work when it comes to the Quran. He, for instance, one of his uh, uh, writings has to do with the foreign vocabulary of the Quran. Another one, uh, materials for. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, the, the title is long. It's just the material that supports basically uh, the Quran. In his writings, uh, he did show excerpts, whatever he can find, obviously, because there is no actual manuscript. What Ibn Mas'ud, for instance, readings looked like for certain chapters, what uh, Obai and Ibn Musa, all those, you'll see that there are variations in readings. And these were the companions of Muhammad, by the way. They were with him. In fact, the claim is that Ibn Mas'ud known the Quran, right? I mean, he, if you want to learn the Quran, you learn it from him. Obai was much younger, and uh, Ibn Mas'ud was upset that they were using Zayd ibn Thabit, for instance, to collect the Quran who wasn't even born, technically right. speaking. So, so all that to say, you see prominent figures 
having what they perceive to be the Quran that was received by the Prophet of Islam. They're having influence in these regions, and yet the claim is that somehow Uthman uh, destroyed their copies. These are the companions, destroyed their copies and sent his own copies. Now you tell me, is this like a man-made product or not? <laughs> Obviously it is. You can see there's enormous amount of holes we can throw in this. Yeah. Talk about holes in the narrative. This is a huge hole. These are all huge holes. What we do know is Arthur Jeffrey writing, he's writing in the 1930s. This is almost 100 years old. So this is not new material that we're interested in. I feel he's a pioneer in that field. When they, some have looked and seen how many differences he found, he found 15,000 differences between these four codices right, right here. Right, Ibn Ubay, Ubay Ibn Qab, Ibn Masud, Ibn Musa, and Zaid Ibn Tabi, he found 15,000 differences referred to in the traditions themselves. So it's very clear that those in the traditions did not see a problem with this, but Muslims today have a problem with this. Why? Well, that's going to be the next episode. We're going to look at what Muslims today say. Do they know about this story? And do they talk about this story? And do they refer to these variants? No, they do not. But let's uh, see what, let's hear what they say. Let's hear what their quotes are. That's the next episode. Wonderful. Thank you so much, of course, for this wonderful material uh, that you've been sharing with our audience. Maybe some of you have uh, have listened to this uh, in the past because we've done a number of shows about these issues. Jay himself did a number of shows on his channel, so you can uh, visit his channel, Fonder Films, uh, uh, and uh, my channel, of course, here International. But if this is new material to you, hopefully you've been blessed by what, what is being shared. And of course, what we want you to do at the end of the day is to uh, reason with our Muslim friends. We want them to really unlock their intellectual capabilities by reasoning, comparing, contrasting, and investigating. I mean, we're sharing with you references. We're telling you where we're getting things from. For instance, uh, encourage our Muslim, maybe buy a, this book as a gift to our Muslim friends, which is creating the Quran. And there are multiple quotations in there with references where you can find uh, these quotations from. In fact, every chapter he gives you in notes, which has ample evidence as the sources, and then he has a, a whole list of bibliography. So all that to say is that there are sources for people to go and inspect. And that's our hope that you would do so. And that's that our hope that our Muslim friends will do so as well. Thank you, Dr. J. Thank you, everyone. This is Al-Fadi. Over and out. God bless you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.